Al Jazeera podcast. A freighter, part Israeli-owned, has been hijacked by Yemen's Houthis in the Red Sea. They say it's in response to Israel's war on Gaza. Iran denies Israeli claims it's involved. So what impact will this have on the region? And what are the possible military and economic implications? I'm Foli Batibo, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now for today's Inside Story. In Reston, Virginia, Trita Parsi, Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. In Doha, Mehran Kamrava, Professor of Government at Georgetown University in Qatar and author of the book Impossibility of Palestine, History, Geography and the Road Ahead. And in London, Farah al-Muslimi, Research Fellow on Yemen at the Gulf at Chatham House, he joins us from London. Thank you all for being with us on Inside Story. Uh, Mehran in Doha, if I can start with you. The Houthis, have we've, as we've heard, have launched missile and drone attacks against Israel since October the 7th. How much of an escalation does the seizure of this cargo ship in the Southern Red Sea represent? Well, it represents a significant development in that um, the so-called resistance front uh, made up of Iran, its proxies, Houthis, Hamas, and Hezbollah, would like to engage in a relatively low-intensity conflict with Israel in which there's a steady war of attrition and the costs of the conflict for Israel are increasingly ratcheted up. So it's, it's a significant development. And of course, we have to wait and see what the next... Um, set of circumstances and the next developments are, how things will unfold over the next uh, couple of days. Mm. Uh, but certainly it does not bode well for region-wide tensions. How do you think the Israelis might respond, Mehran? Well, the Israelis have already pointed the finger at Iran. What Israel would like to do is to draw in the United States to engage Iran directly. And this, of course, uh, widening of the conflict and pointing the finger at Iran would only divert attention from the tragedy that's unfolding in Gaza. So the Israelis right now, of course, they, they cannot do much because they have their hands full. But what they would like is to draw in the United States mm. so that the United States would um, engage with uh, Iran directly. All right. I'll ask Trita about that in just a moment, Trita, about the impact this could have on, on U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis the Gaza war. But let me come to uh, Farah al-Muslimi first and find out more about what the Houthis' objective is here by targeting uh, this cargo ship. We've, again, seen them uh, uh, launch missile attacks and drone attacks against Israel. But what are they trying to achieve by targeting ships in this uh, particular route, which is an important trading route, of course? Uh, what are they trying to show? Definitely, uh, the Houthi attacks on the Red Sea should, ships should not be surprising. And I think, unfortunately, as long as the Gaza war continues, we will see more of those attacks. And not just on uh, ships that are related to uh, uh, Israel, but in fact, uh, ships related to Western companies and to Western countries, even though so far that hasn't happened yet. And I think there are a few reasons for this. Whether Iran asks or didn't ask for the Houthis to do an attack on Israel does not really matter anymore. Because 
As your previous guest correctly mentioned that the Red Sea is the new front lines for the axis of Iran or the axis of resistance in the area, but also because it's a huge being anti-Israel, anti-America is a clear and a fundamental goal of the Houthis and part of their um, uh, logos, but also as part of their ideology since day one. So hence, whether uh, is, uh, Iran got involved on in this or not, I think that is uh, not a necessary question anymore. They will continue to attack further like this, and they have gone further. It's not going to be a strategic threat to Israel, but if it happens as a part of a larger coordinated attack from different countries in the region, then it will definitely be a, a huge challenge to the uh, uh, Israeli security dome. Yeah, you, you say uh, it doesn't matter whether or not Iran is involved in this Farah, and the Iranians have indeed denied involvement. Uh, but the, the Houthis here, are they, just, are they doing this just uh, because of the war on Gaza, as they say, or are there other factors also at play here? Are there other objectives that they're trying to achieve? So, I mean, obviously, as I said, we should not be surprised that they're attacking because being anti-Israel is really something to them is a good. And they have been having that logo for 10 years, but their wars has been mostly with the Saudis or with the rest of the Yemenis. Mm -hmm. So Israel going to Gaza is definitely an early Christmas for the Houthi uh, vision and for the Houthi worldview in that regards. However, I think they are also trying to not just uh, uh, protect Israel or uh, protect Palestine or Gaza, but they definitely, and here is where they clearly agree with Iran, they have a clear direct interest in erupting the possible Saudi-Israeli normalization, okay. even though if on the long term, the current attacks might only make this perceived threat by Saudis and Israelis more accurate. But in fact, that is one of the other games of the Houthis is to actually erupt any possible normalization between the Saudis and Israelis, which is also a goal they share definitely with the Iranians. And we'll discuss this a little uh, later, uh, some more. Trita, let me come to you and ask you about your thoughts about the significance of this incident, the seizure of this uh, cargo ship. How does it create a new dimension in this Israel-Gaza war? Well, it certainly creates a new dimension, as uh, the other guests have pointed out, because we're seeing that slowly but surely, the war in Gaza, contrary to what the United States says that he wants and what it's trying to prevent, is spreading. Now, it's spreading in incremental steps. None of these uh, steps so far have risen to the threshold of actually uh, dramatically changing the war towards um, direct involvement of the United States or direct Israeli targeting of some of these other players. But we have to ask ourselves this. Did the Houthis know whether there were Israelis on that ship or not? I think there's a likelihood that they didn't know and that they may have targeted that ship hoping that there would be Israelis on the ship. And if that had been the case, they would now be holding several Israeli hostages under those circumstances. What would this have led to? This is where this situation is so tremendously dangerous because many of these different steps that have been taken so far have not risen to the threshold of sparking a regional war, but they very easily could have. And this is where I think the U.S.'s strategy of trying to prevent that escalation has been a failure, because conceptually, it's only been focused on pressuring um, uh, Iran and some of its uh, allies while putting no pressure on Israel to de-escalate the situation. And in the long run, that is not going to work out. On the U.S.'s... Uh... 
uh, policy, Trita, some leaders in the Israeli government and establishment reportedly want to expand the confrontation on the military front uh, to Hezbollah in Lebanon. And we've seen several, uh, several uh, attacks uh, uh, along that uh, border, the northern Israeli border and the southern Lebanese border in recent days, in addition to this attack by the Houthis. Um, and and uh, Merad mentioned that this, that this is, could be, you know, by pointing the finger at Israel, this could be Israel trying to drag the Americans into this conflict. And you talked about a threshold. When do we get to a point of a direct military engagement by the Americans in a broader regional war? Well, the most obvious threshold is if one of these different attacks, particularly now there's been about 62 attacks against American bases in the region, if they uh, uh, end up killing American soldiers. If uh, a dozen or so American soldiers are killed in such an attack, the pressure on Biden to retaliate militarily is going to be very, very significant. And I personally don't find it likely that he will be able to withstand the pressure. The question then is, will he target these uh, um, uh, militias in Iraq or in Syria, or will he target Iran? If he targets Iran, at that point, I think we will have a regional war. The very same regional war that the United States says that it doesn't want, that I think is absolutely correct, it would be completely detrimental to U.S. interests. But at this point, elements inside the U.S. government itself are fearing that that is the direction that Israel wants to drag the U.S. That was not the assessment of the Americans about five weeks ago. Okay, so that's the direction you say the uh, Israel wants uh, to drag uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, Mehran, let me ask you about Iran now and what direction they would like to see this conflict go to, because we've seen Tehran in the past few weeks somewhat try to distance itself from the various groups in the region that are against Israel, that are uh, targeting Israel, whether it's Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, Tehran has said that these groups are allies, but that it doesn't control them, that it's not involved in, in their decision-making. What new factors do you think uh, this development, the hijacking of this ship, uh, what do they bring into the thinking of the Iranian leadership right now? Well, Iran is playing a very complicated, um, very um, carefully crafted uh, game, trying to modulate its responses to developments as they occur on the ground. Uh, on the one hand, as you mentioned, they are encouraging the so-called resistance front to continue putting pressure on Israel and the United States, while on the other hand, they are also trying to ensure that the conflict doesn't necessarily blow up and inadvertently engulf them. So one of the calculations, uh, I believe, that is currently at work uh, with Iran is how to maintain pressure on the Americans and uh, on Israel through these small attacks that, or relatively small attacks that Trita mentioned, while at the same time making sure that they don't get blown up, uh, blown out of proportion to the extent that then the Americans or the Israelis would have to get directly involved. And so I think the Iranians are very careful to make sure that they do not overplay their hands, while at the same time uh, they maintain pressure through Hezbollah, through the Houthis, through their proxies in Iraq, uh, maintain the pressure on the Americans. That's a very difficult balancing act, though, isn't it? Uh, terribly difficult and very dangerous, inherently dangerous. 
I think the end game here is to ensure that Israel um, is pressed into some sort of a ceasefire and the killing of uh, civilians in Gaza. Okay. Farah, your thoughts. Uh, Mehran says relatively small attacks for now from the Houthis, but is the Houthi involvement likely to be stepped up in, 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 in the next few weeks? I am afraid, yes, that the Houthis will only get more involved in this war. One, first of all, no one should underestimate the recklessness of the Houthis. If it wasn't for them, um, we wouldn't been in, in a war today in Yemen to start with. Number two, their drone and missile capabilities with the support of Iran has dramatically increased since 2015. Mm -hmm. And I would totally and highly warn against underestimating their capabilities. That has been a trend internationally and regionally to underestimate the Houthis as a flip-flop guys from the mountains. But for the last nine years, their capabilities, their threat, the risks, and their ability to harm quickly and further and anywhere has only increased over these years. But I think more of these strikes will happen, as I said, regardless whether Iran will secede or be secede or no, for mm -hmm. various reasons. But among them is because right now, the current, even if fragile arrangements between Saudi Arabia and Iran are protected in many ways and provides some sort of a shelter or a shield for it to be able to strike the West or Israel as much as possible, while, as our previous guest said, claiming the total deniability and then not paying any price at the moment. That so, Farah, you say more of these strikes game. could happen. Let, let me just pick up on what you said there. You said more of these strikes could happen. Could maritime transport be disrupted by, by the Houthis in a way that could have significant impact? I think so. And I think that's the next game, is it will hit Bab al-Mandab, it will hit areas in the Red Sea, and actually this will have a tremendous impact on the oil prices on the long term, but also on um, uh, insurance prices. I think um, it is has been already expensive, it has already increased over the years, but we are speaking of trillions and trillions of dollars in the global economy if Bab al-Mandab or if the Red Sea gets more mined than already it is. And I insist we still not yet have totally seen what the Houthis are capable of doing in the sea specifically. That is still an underestimated capabilities they have. But the incident yesterday only demonstrates how able and how far and how reckless they are willing to go. Trita, uh, Farah says we've not seen what the Houthis are capable of. What, what, what do you think is going on right now in Israel in terms of their policy? Where, where do you read Israeli policy when it comes to the question of widening the conflict and drawing in more powers like Israel? How would they respond to more Israeli, uh, more uh, um, Houthi attacks in, in this Red Sea uh, area? Well, I think, first of all, we have to recognize that Israel is politically, internally, pretty much in a, a state of chaos. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there is significant tensions within the Israeli government itself. You have uh, a clear view amongst the Israeli public that Bibi Netanyahu is not trustworthy. Only 4% trust what he says uh, on the matter of the war. Um, and you also have a clear understanding that as soon as this crisis is over, Netanyahu's political career is also over, which may have created an incentive for him to drag out this conflict rather than allowing it to come to a conclusion. On top of that, you have the matter of uh, the families of the hostages who are putting increasing pressure mm -hmm. on the Israeli government to 
win the release of the hostages rather than just carpet bombing Gaza. And you have a question as to whether if there is a small prisoner exchange, and as a result, the family sees that an exchange is possible, if that actually will change the dynamics internally in Israel in favor of prioritizing the prisoner exchange, which clearly so far has not been the priority, rather right. than prioritizing the war. Right. Trisha, you say Israel, Netanyahu, I should say, would want to drag out this conflict. But is Israel in a position today to fight on, on two, three fronts, whether it's uh, south, north, the Houthis, uh, without U.S. backing? How preca precarious is uh, uh, Israel's U.S. Uh, military position today? Not the U.S., but Israel's military position. It will be extremely difficult for the Israelis to fight uh, a several-front war. Uh, but that is precisely why, in such a scenario, Israel would probably act in a manner that would drag the United States into the war. And again, this is what the American side is starting to fear. This was not the assessment of the U.S. in the beginning of the conflict. They did not assess that the Israelis wanted to widen the war. At this point, there are those inside the U.S. government that are fearing that that is the direction we're heading. And again, the only thing that can really put an end to all of these different extremely dangerous dynamics is a ceasefire. But right. so far, Biden has completely blocked that. Do you think the Biden administration can restrain the Israelis right now? It certainly can if it wants to. The United States have been able to do so on numerous okay. occasions when it has wanted to do so. The question is whether Biden wants to do it and whether he's ready to pay whatever political price he thinks that entails. But the political price of not restraining uh, the Israelis is also starting to become clear because Biden is plummeting in the polls only right. uh, 12 months till the elections. And uh, a very critical factor as to why he is plummeting is the war in Gaza and the manner that he has been supporting the Israelis and blocked the, uh, uh, a ceasefire. Yeah, 12 months into the election, and there are lots of questions whether there's any incentive at all for Biden to put more American boots on the ground in this region. Mehran, let me come to you and, and ask about the Saudis. Where does this leave Saudi Arabia? Iran's supreme leader, we saw, urge Muslim states to cut political ties with Israel. What impact uh, do attacks such as this one by the Houthis have on the so-called Saudi-Israeli normalization, which was happening be uh, reportedly before October the 7th. And where does it leave the Saudi-Yemen uh, ceasefire and, and uh, the, the uh, uh, goals to end the war there? The ceasefire between uh, Saudi Arabia and the Houthis has always been very precarious and uh, not uh, stable at all. And I think this only adds to the precarity of the ceasefire. Uh, as, um, as Farah mentioned uh, uh, from London, uh, you know, we should not underestimate the Houthis' capabilities. So uh, first and foremost, what we see is, uh, uh, once again, a demonstration of Houthi capabilities, this time actually hijacking uh, a ship. And, and this lesson is not uh, lost on Riyadh, the fact that the Houthis remain unpredictable and uh, continue to remain quite lethal. But it also puts additional pressure on Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, the uh, war in Gaza remains extremely unpopular uh, in, uh, in the Arab street, in the 
proverbial Arab street. And the public opinion across the Arab world, including in Saudi Arabia, is uh, squarely with the Palestinians, a couple of uh, government mouthpieces notwithstanding. And so this adds tremendous pressure on the Saudi government uh, to delay the normalization uh, even further uh, with, uh, with Israel. I think all of us who observe um, the Middle East politics uh, think that normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel is a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. But this um, uh, ongoing tragedy and genocide only further delays uh, what seems to be inescapable. It delays it, but it's, it, but it's then not necessarily off the table. Uh, I, yes, absolutely. I don't think it's off the table. It might delay by as much as a year or two, but okay. it's not off the table by any stretch of imagination. All right, Farah, let me come to you. Things can, can move quickly out of control. Where do you see the situation heading? Are we looking uh, at a wider regional conflict here? So in regards to the impact on the Yemen war specifically, this spillover has already meant, unfortunately, that even the possible larger agreement of a ceasefire that was supposed to be announced recently between the Saudis and the rest of the Yemenis under the Saudi sponsorship has been put into delay because obviously, as you mentioned, because of the optics of what's happening in Gaza and the different um, pressures that different governments are going through in the region. If this, which seems likely what will happen, strikes continues, I think, first of all, despite the Saudis' desire to neutralize these two paths from each other that will ultimately fail because there will be a one point, not just an American, but a British and other Western response to what the Houthis do. And number two, despite Iran's uh, desire to keep Hezbollah out of this, I think that might spill over and that also will be another impact. I do not think, and I agree with your two guests, that Israel will go into a new front line or an open front line in Yemen, but what it can exactly do is go after, and what it most likely will do is actually go after the Houthi leaders' specific strikes or operations, whether inside Yemen or outside mm -hmm. Yemen. Let's not forget that Israel actually has intervened in the Yemen civil war in the 1960s when it uh, 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 did an airstrikes against the Republicans who were by that time supported by Egypt's Nasser. So this will not also be the first time that Israel have its hand muddy in the table, but if, even if not on the larger um, uh, 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 scale level of a new total front line. All right. Trita Parsi in Virginia, I'll give you the last word. Uh, could this war lead to wider regional instability? Is it going to be able to be contained by rational thinking, you think? Well, I think from the outset, most players in this scenario didn't want to have an escalation. Uh, so it was never about whether countries or actors here wanted this war at this moment. However, the combination of miscalculation and the American strategy of only putting pressure on one side rather than on both sides is likely going to make uh, an escalation uh, something that we will see in the next few weeks. I mean, we just heard that uh, Hezbollah has now managed to strike a major um, uh, base in Israel and, and almost completely destroying it. That's going to cause a retaliation from the Israelis. So mm -hmm. this effort of trying to prevent that escalation would have been far more successful if the Biden administration from the outset 
did not stand in the way of the international calls coming from the UN, coming from the UN Security Council, the Secretary General, et cetera, et cetera, for a ceasefire. It's not too late to achieve that, but it requires a complete rethink in the White House. It's not too late to achieve a ceasefire. Gentlemen, thank you very much for a great discussion. Very interesting to hear your thoughts about all this. Trita Parsi, Mehran Kamrava, Farah Al-Muslimi. Thank you all for joining us on Inside Story. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Umikul Sum Sharif, Veronica Pedrosa and Jimmy Getahun. Studio sound was by Yase Romani. The program was edited by Manish Matai, Zena Brother and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Tuesday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, a doctor gives us a deep look inside El Shifa, Gaza's largest medical complex, following Israel's military raid on the hospital. That's The Take from Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.